This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Did you know that cyclists who ride a minimum of three hours a week have a 28% lower risk of all-cause mortality than non-cyclists? Shouldn't your life insurance premiums reflect that? Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like cyclists, runners, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com mtb. Or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. Stay tuned for more information partway through this episode. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. To kick off our discussion on EMTBs, we heard from some representatives from the cycling industry, a manufacturer, and an expert and e-bike reviewer. For part two, we focused on the perceptions out there and what the current regulations are for accessing soft surface trails on an EMTB. Now, the latter is quickly changing and evolving, and for part three of our discussion, I'd like to look at one of the main groups out there advocating for those changes. I'm your host, Brian Hillier. And this is episode 38 of Frontlines. Before we get to this episode's main guest, I'd like to share some comments from a past guest and good friend of the podcast, Joshua Rebinock. Some of you will be familiar with Joshua from way back in episode 8, where we discussed urban trails. Joshua is with the Cayuna Lakes mountain bike crew in Minnesota. Very recently, he also launched City MTB, which is an organization that helps communities understand and create urban mountain bike trails. I'll include some links in the show notes, and Joshua will also be joining us for a full episode very soon. You'll also be hearing his voice on the next episode's panel discussion. Now, here's Josh. I don't think that e-mountain bikes are evil. But what I've noticed is the company selling the mountain bikes, as well as the people um, pushing for access for e-mountain bikes, and even bike dealers that are selling e-mountain bikes, don't seem to understand the complexities of land management here in the United States. The U.S. is a federated system, meaning that we have multiple layers of government that each have multiple um, divisions and departments within them, each with their own rules. And it's entirely possible to have various levels of government as partners in the management of a property. And because it would depend on which department of that government is managing day-to-day operations of that particular piece of ground, differing rules, even though you might have the same land managers as a place next door. It gets even more complicated because, especially here in the eastern half of the United States, we roll our own. We pay for our own mountain bike trails, and we often do that through grants. Now, those can be private grants or they can be public grants, but regardless, those grants come with various rules and requirements 
to get and use those monies. So that adds another layer of control that may go on a property that could have e-mountain bikes on it. And I want to illustrate this using my local trails at Cuyuna. So Cuyuna is on state ground managed by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. The Minnesota DNR has adopted the People for Bikes verbiage, the same as the Minnesota Department of Transportation. Both, both those uh, departments are taking the boilerplate e-bike verbiage that People for Bikes has made. Because of that, you can totally have an e-mountain bike on our trails as well as an e-bike on the paved trail which runs through uh, the Cuyuna Lakes, um, the Cuyuna Country State Recreational Area. As my local club is expanding into county land, depending on how the county would manage their land, would depend on whether or not e-mountain bikes would be acceptable. In our case, Crow Wing County, the county which the Cuyuna Trails are located within, does allow motorized uses on county land. So does that mean our trails that are going to be on county land as we expand out will be e-mountain bike allowed? Actually, no. The reason for that is is because we have a matching grant. In other words, we're getting a dollar-for-dollar dollar match from a grantee. That grantee is set up for human-powered recreation. So even though we're building trails with a land manager, in this case Crow Wing County, who would be fine with us having e-mountain bikes on them, we're paying for it with funds that would not allow e-mountain bikes and will never allow e-mountain bikes on those trails. There's no way, unless you knew all the complexities of how that trail uh, came to be and how it was funded and, and you know, the rules of uh, the, the particular land manager, that you would ever know that level of detail. And that's the problem. So it gets very tough when a company seeking to make money is selling an e-mountain bike package to another company, a bike company, seeking to make money. That bike company is then selling those e-bikes to a set of dealers, also seeking to make money. And then that dealer is selling it to a customer in the hope of making money. For everyone in that food chain, there's no um, reason to know how the e-mountain bike might be used and where it's going to be used. Because if there was any thought about that, it would might prevent the making of money along the chain. So what happens is we end up with customers who don't really know where they can ride them. And without, in a lot of cases, a lot of research, you wouldn't necessarily able to figure that out. So one of the things that I see as a failure of the e-mountain bike sort of grouping is this pushing off of figuring out access to the end user and also 
arguing for shoehorning of e-mountain bikes into all properties without much concern for their management or any other um, requirements that might go with that land. And that's really the problem here. I would like to see the e-mountain bike industry maybe step off the gas of let's put them everywhere and start putting a little bit more of their money into let's create new trails that we know are legal for them so that we can have more trails to ride, whether you're a human-powered mountain biker or you're an e-mountain biker. Joshua really highlights some of the major concerns that many advocates have about EMTBs on our trails. And I'm looking forward to hearing from him more, along with a number of other guests next episode. Next, we're going to hear from the podcast's very first of what I hope will be many contributors. Rick Bowles is a local trail builder on the North Shore of Vancouver, and he's currently dipping his shovel abroad while traveling and living in Australia. And over the next year, he's going to be bringing us some stories. Last week was the first of four stops for the Crankworks Mountain Bike Festival. Rick headed to Rotorua, New Zealand, and sat down with Jamie Mead, who, in addition to being the Skyline Bike Park Manager, is also one of the founders of the New Zealand Professional Mountain Bike Association. Here's Jamie. Me and three others scattered across the country um, last year for a bit of a gap and, and basically started the New Zealand Professional Mountain Bike Association, um, which is designed for everything within the professional mountain bike realm. So everything from coaching, guiding, qualifications, regulations, everything. Uh, and bike parks is included in that. Um, and we launched um, at the end of last year um, and had a launch where a lot of government agencies attended amongst other people. Um, and within a day we had an email um, with, with an e-bike evaluation from the Department of Conservation uh, and the Department of Conservation or DOC as they're called in New Zealand um, is a government agency that um, one of their many many roles is to oversee trails across the country um, and they had done an, an evaluation on e-bikes um, and um, what basically asking what their place was in New Zealand as in do we authorise e-bikes on what trails and what um, if we are going to have limitations on them what are those limitations um, because they have a trail network that goes through New Zealand um, and they sort of had their concerns about the use of e-bikes uh, do they potentially damage trails uh, people's attitudes towards e-bikes and all the rest of it um, and the association did provide them comment um, and, and feedback on the report that they had given. Um, and it really was based that sort of, it, it is a growing industry. Um, it allows more people to, um, you know, access areas that they wouldn't do. Um, one of the pieces of feedback that it wasn't necessarily people um, of an older generation, that it was younger people too. Um, in fact, I, the guys from Empire of Dirt, they want to use some e-bikes for hunting. They want to use them to get into backcountry areas where they'd stereotypically have to walk into. Um, so that was one of our points of feedback. It's not just uh, the older generation that would look at using e-bikes. Um, and also as well, the, the debate over whether potential um, e-bikes could damage trails or not uh, by, by using them. Um, and Department of Conservation has actually had some research or um, some, some data that said actually you know, there isn't anything proven to say that e-bikes do damage trails. Um, so for, from memory, and I'd have to confirm, um, but I think when we went back to them, we said, look, you know, as far as tra you know, backcountry trail networks and everything else go, um, that you know, anything under the 300 watt mark for an e-bike, um, you know, 
didn't, you know, the industry typically didn't have a problem with them being on trails, um, but that didn't apply to everything over the 300 watt mark uh, because it's a little bit of a, a different kettle of fish and that you're almost getting into a, a proper motorised vehicle um, and that's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, and I think um, the feedback was given to the Department of Conservation. And, uh, not sure if one of the other guys has heard back from them, but yeah. At this point, they may not have made a final decision exactly. with that. Yeah, yeah. Are you aware that in Washington State that they have banned e-bikes on all non-hard surface trails? And what's your thought on that? Um, I think. Ah, oh, surprising. I think it's it's a. I think I, I look at the variety of trail networks that you have. Um, and there's definitely a place for it. Um, you know, it's, I mean, if more people are riding bikes, it's a good thing. You know, more people on bikes is a good thing. It's, it's sort of, and I think there's definitely a place for it, and there's definitely a place for it on non-sealed trails. Um, whether you want people on e-bikes, on your, on your sort of your, your grade five or your black or double black diamond trails, maybe not. Um, but you know, in uh, sort of, but in some trails that, like I said, if it allows people to do something, I don't know, like the, the Heafy Track or any of the multi-day trails that um, otherwise wouldn't be able to do it through, whether it's through um, age or disability or anything else like that, well, I think there is a place for it. Okay, I think we'll stop at that point. Thanks, Jamie. I appreciate that opinion on there. We'll, uh, Check back with you later and how you feel about that. Once again, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ saves its customers up to 33% because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. If approved, Health IQ will use information like race and event registrations and your ride log information from websites like Strava, Trailforks, or MapMyRide to secure you with a better rate on life insurance. Just like a clean driving record will get you lower car insurance, Health IQ helps those living an active, healthy lifestyle pay less for life insurance. And Health IQ doesn't just generate leads and forward you to an insurer. They walk you through the entire journey from answering any initial questions to starting an application, going through underwriting all the way to when your policy is signed and official. Learn more and get a free quote at HealthIQMTB or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a HealthIQ agent today. Morgan Lamel is the e-bike campaigns manager at the Bicycle Product Suppliers Association and the People for Bikes Coalition. Hi, Morgan. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we kind of dive into into anything surrounding e-bikes, I just would like to know, and, and I'm sure my audience would like to know, what is the the Bicycle Product Suppliers Association and the, the People for Bikes Coalition? Great question. The Bicycle Product Suppliers Association, which we call the BPSA, is the industry trade group representing bicycle products uh, suppliers and manufacturers. So, um, obviously, our members include Trek, Specialized, Giant, Cannondale, and um, almost 100 other suppliers making anything from bike saddles to fully built-out bikes. The People for Bikes Coalition is a advocacy group partially funded by the industry, but also funded by foundation and other sources of income 
working to make every bike ride better for everyone. So we work on participation and marketing campaigns. We have a pretty developed Places for Bikes program where we uh, work with cities to develop infrastructure to get more people riding more often on better infrastructure. And we have a pretty strong policy side, and that's where I work, to promote better bicycling policies to secure funding for bike infrastructure, mountain bike projects, and advocate for bicycling on the local, state, and federal levels. We've heard from a, a number of people over, over the last two episodes, and, and we've heard a number of the benefits of, of e-bikes. And I, I know many listeners have concerns about e-mountain bikes and, and those starting to be introduced onto mountain bike trails. For me and, and for many others out there, the, the glaring factor in, in all of this is that right now, kind of the, the majority of land managers seem to, to either classify them as motor vehicles or they don't really have any policy kind of surrounding e-bikes right now. And, and when we look at the three major federal land managers in the United States that we kind of deal with as, as recreationists, they're, they're really kind of looking at uh, e-bikes, including the, the class one e-bikes as motorized vehicles. And, and that almost to me kind of seems like that's the end of the discussion. Like it sounds like these things aren't allowed on trail, but are we seeing a change to those laws and, and what role does people for bikes kind of have in that? Well, you're right. The BLM defines e-bikes as off-road vehicles. The Park Service is motor vehicles and the Forest Service is motor vehicles. But I wouldn't say that those are modern-day policies in reaction to what a modern electric bicycle is. The the e-bike that you would find in a in a bike shop today looks a lot different than the one you would find 20 years ago or however long ago when these policies were put in place. And there wasn't a low-speed electric bike bike that really mimicked a traditional bike with a small motor. So to answer your question about whether those policies are going to change, I think that in five years we'll be having a much different conversation and they will have changed. That said, it's the federal government and it's a bureaucratic uh, process to change anything. So there are a variety of different ways that local land managers on a local forest or unit or state level can go ahead and allow electric mountain bikes on a non-motorized if they so please. And that's really been the position of People for Bikes and the BPSA. We Our goal is that when a policy decision is made, it's made based on data and facts and not so much an emotional response to, hey, we don't want motorcycles on our trails or this will open the door for access issues or jeopardize us in policy negotiations. So my work really revolves around developing handbooks and and resources for land managers to have all the information they need about an electric mountain bike. And then they can take that back to the people who use the trails that they manage on those public lands and their staff and their fellow colleagues and make a decision. So we know of a few places, especially on Forest Service property and at the local level, where they are considering allowing Class 1 electric mountain bikes on a few non-motorized trails because there's a user demand for it. And the land manager has looked at all the issues and hasn't considered it a real problem. On the other hand, on the majority of non-motorized federal public land trails, they're not allowed yet. So to add on to my response, I mean, they're, they know that, I like to say that electric bikes aren't segways. They're not going to go away anytime soon. It's not a trend, in my opinion. Sales are growing at least 50% year over year. And by some accounts, 7% of all bikes sold these days are e-bikes. So sales are growing and land managers know that they're not going away. More and more people are aging out of mountain biking and want to continue to ride. 
And so for the land managers, for the type of land managers I deal with, they, they just need to do something about it. And they know that, and it might take a long time, but I believe that in about five years, there will be different policies at the federal level that let local land managers figure out um, how to allow electric mountain bikes with a little bit more flexibility. And we're, we don't advocate for that. What we advocate for is sensible policies that are up to date with what a modern day electric mountain bike is. I think a, a big hang up for, for not only for, for myself, but I think for policy writers out there is, is how can we, uh, how can something with a, an electric motor, you know, be defined on, it can be defined as non-motorized and, and it is a huge challenge. Right. You know, are we just, is it, is it something that we just need a name change to some of these policies? Is that, is that what's required here? I don't have a perfect answer. The way I explain it to myself is, you know, a bike with a motor is different than a motor vehicle. And, and you're right. There's a big hole in that argument. How could a bike with a motor not be a motor vehicle? But you have a mountain bike on one end of the spectrum, a motorcycle combustion engine vehicle on the other side of the spectrum, and an electric mountain bike falls somewhere in between. It's not one or the other. So maybe there is an opportunity to allow a class one electric mountain bike within the menu, so to speak, of different different uses for a trail, because right now that doesn't exist. For example, at California State Parks, a district superintendent can decide to allow, you know, decide with public input, of course, to allow equestrian use, hiking, bike use, motorized use. And they have, you know, very simply put, a menu of things that they can allow on a trail. And a class one electric mountain bike is not on that list. And so I think a, a good solution might, and maybe it's not an ideal one, but a good one might be to designate a class one electric mountain bike as another one of those uses and not restrict it to motorized or non-motorized, but let the local land manager figure out where that class one electric mountain bike should be allowed regardless of the, the motorized or non-motorized designation of the trail. And that's something that IMBA, uh, we've been working on IMBA with, and um, I believe that they believe might be a good option to um, allow that local level decision making without lumping class one EMTBs in with a motorcycle or a mountain bike, but this third category of wheeled device that you can use on a trail. And so, yeah, we are seeing some states kind of be more proactive than others. You know, I, I look to places like California and kind of the usual suspects of, of either, you know, really clicked on states as far as advocacy goes. Minnesota, for example, and Michigan, mm -hmm. you know, they've got policies in place. Are we seeing kind of case studies coming out of these places? And, and are those being used to kind of help educate some of those other land managers that haven't really addressed the, that e-bike question just yet? So first, I want to distinguish between changes in the vehicle codes and changes in what state parks are doing for public land. So in about eight states, we changed the vehicle code. So the e class one, two, and three e-bikes are defined as bicycles and allowed wherever a bike, generally allowed wherever a bike could be on bike paths and on the road. And that's simply because in the state's vehicle code, e-bikes were classified as motorcycles, and that's not correct. So now they have their own classification. On the other hand, and that has no bearing on public lands, state parks, state forests, certainly not at the, uh, federal public lands. So in those eight states, an e-bike is classified as a bike. When you talk about public lands and really single track mountain biking, there are a number of state parks that allow them, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, South Dakota, Minnesota, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Florida, and Louisiana, all allow electric bikes in some way or another 
on state park property. So wherever you can ride a bicycle on single track on state parks or forests, you can ride a electric mountain bike. And to your question about case studies, I do get asked all the time from land managers, at, you know, at the local, state, and federal levels, what are other land managers doing? They really learn best from their community of peers, and they don't really look to people for bikes for for internal guidance on what they should do. They certainly look to us for resources and we're partners, but they want to know what other land managers are doing as a precedent or as an example for, for management. So, for example, Jefferson County Parks in the Front Range of Colorado here they recently decided to allow class one e-bikes wherever a bicycle is allowed. So that is a an example for other land managers on how they go about it. And they did an extensive amount of research research on the on the front end to come to that decision. Um, the San Juan National Forest outside of Durango, Colorado, they recently went through an environmental process and it took a few years, but they decided to open up about 13 miles of non-motorized trails to class one EMTBs as well. You know, we're working on a number of other projects with the Forest Service in California to do an environmental analysis through the National Environmental Policy Act to potentially open up some some connectors or some connectors to town of non-motorized trail to electric mountain bikes. And that's not a done deal at all. But they realize that there's a growing user group of electric mountain bikers who are looking for places to ride and don't currently have those. And I'm sure the devil's advocate listening right now might say, well, they can ride wherever a motorcycle can ride and they can ride wherever a car can ride on dirt roads and double track and motorized single track. But when you think about motorized single track, it's never close to an urban area. It's always further away because traditionally motorcycles have emissions and noise and have these externalities that people don't want close to their home. But an, an, an electric mountain bike is more similar to a mountain bike in that regard. No noise, no emissions. Studies show that the tread impact is much sim- is very similar to a traditional mountain bike. So no good places to ride close to home for an electric mountain bike. So land managers are struggling with that as, with that as well. And, and again, we try to be a resource. A lot of folks are are challenged in in the world of advocacy. It's it's a, there's some places that are are constantly fighting to either gain access or maintain access to their mountain bike trails, and and I know that there's a, a lot of people out there that feel like this just makes it a, a little bit harder. That the the argument from those that kind of oppose mountain biking is is always that um, they're they're fast. There's user conflict, and and you know they're just like motorcycles. And, and they're just as problematic as, as dirt bikes. And, and now by kind of adding this, this e-mountain bike to the repertoire that we're just almost arming these, uh, these vocal uh, proponents against mountain bike with, with more cannon fodder. And, and definitely in, in the context of, you know, trying to gain access to either wilderness or trying to, to regain access to proposed wilderness, you know, this is, this is kind of potentially going to make things more challenging uh, out there for some advocacy groups. You know, what's what's kind of your response to that? Well, first of all, I e-bikes and wilderness are two completely separate issues that just happen to have come to a head at the same time. Second of all, I mean, I've worked in the trenches of mountain bike advocacy for many years, and I always look to what the land managers say. You know, at the end of the day, as powerful as a mountain bike chapter can be, it's really a land management decision in partnership with public input. I haven't spoken to a single land manager who has threatened to close access to mountain bike access trails because of the onset of electric mountain bikes. 
I think it's a very healthy debate to have. And I certainly am not trying to be defensive about this, but mountain bikers are always on edge and always on the defensive because we've just been shot down for the past 30, 40 years for access and things are finally getting better. We have thousands of miles of trails to ride close to home. You know, we have built out mountain bike trail systems in, you know, even in national parks and certainly in forests and on the BLM public lands that we all enjoy. And things are finally getting better and people feel threatened by electric mountain bikes and I get it, but I'm not seeing that come to fruition anywhere. The only stories that I've heard are really anecdotal from a land manager mentioning in passing, you know, well, if you guys can't get along, we'll just have to shut the trails down. And and really, it's not as easy as that. And I believe in the power of mountain bikers to fight back. And we really want to be a partner in that. One of the other arguments that that upsets me truly is when I read, um, you know, in some of our trade media that the industry doesn't care about access and they're just trying to sell electric mountain bikes. Well, the industry has contributed about $1.2 million over the last four years to help preserve, to help do the right thing and fight for electric mountain bike access in a really respectful and, and really reverent way to existing mountain bikers and existing mountain bike access. So I work in this every day, all day long. And first, like I said, I, I know that people are worried about it and I, I just don't see it coming to light. And land managers really do understand the difference between a mountain bike and an electric mountain bike and haven't really threatened to close anything down today or tomorrow. So I want to have the conversation with people who are worried about it. I'm just not seeing it be an actual issue. And I believe the industry um, has the utmost respect for mountain bike advocates and the work they've put into access for the last 40 years and doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize that. Now, with you touched on a great point there, and, and, and that is that trail associations, organizations, they're not setting these policies. It's, it's up to the land managers, but there's a lot of kind of smaller land managers out there, municipalities, and, and they don't necessarily have the, the resources or the capacity to kind of uh, to, to, to look at e-bikes and, and really proactively set a policy. And, and so as the slow process of kind of the, the more larger state uh, land managers and federal land managers are, are working on this policy, these smaller land managers are kind of left in limbo. And a lot of them are looking to the local trail association to kind of say like, mm-hmm. what's your stance? And, and so what are your suggestions for local trail associations that are having conversations with land managers, especially these smaller ones out there? Um, what can trail associations do to kind of get ahead of this and be proactive? Are you, do you mean trail associations who don't want to share the trail with electric mountain bikes <laughs> at all and want to keep? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I can, yeah, no, that's, and that's a great uh, distinction there. And, and so it's, it's my belief that, um, that, you know, there might be some involved with trail associations that may have that view, but I think it's important. And, and I've had this discussion with, uh, with, with Christian Jackson from, from the Boone area cyclists of, of a, it's mm-hmm. important to understand the perceptions of the, the population and, and of the, the members of a trail association, but no matter what this is, coming down and this is happening we are going to see more and more e-mountain bikes out on the trail and right. and so whether the policy is for or against there needs to be uh, a proactive look at it and so what resources are out there for trail associations to kind of do that yeah well i'll say first i i truly believe that if uh, you know from a 
human nature perspective, if you ban something, it won't, it won't prevent it from happening. And so if you ban it, and, and we all can acknowledge that people are riding electric mountain bikes on trails that are not motorized right now. So let's try to figure out a way that's to your question. So my suggestion is always to embrace it, but very carefully if a local land management agency doesn't have the resources to full out study the issue. So let's say you have a 35 mile trail system. Um, how about opening up one trail? You know, that's, that's a good size ride, maybe a 10 mile loop to class one electric mountain bikes for one year project, um, you know, make sure it's sunsets, but, and, and look at what happens. And if you find that there are truly conflicts or perceived conflicts between electric mountain bike riders and other trail users, then roll it back a little bit. But if you find that, you know, in reality, they're able to coexist on the trail well and pass safely and you've done enough uh, user education and law enforcement education to know what to expect, then then move forward with it. So the resources we have available are um, I put together what I call the EMTB playbook, and it just it's a very, very careful approach to doing a pilot project and understanding what EMTBs are and how they might fit on the local trail system. So that's for an advocate. Um, we also have a land manager handbook that's about a 40-page guidebook that's modeled after the BLM guidelines for quality trail experiences, which is for a mountain biker perspective. Um, and that educates land managers on, okay, you want to allow electric mountain bikes, what do you do now um, from a physical trail perspective and a social trail perspective? So there are a couple handbooks out there that help advocates and land managers wrap their heads around this issue. And to summarize, my recommendation would be to just find a small section of your trail system, allow electric mountain bikes there, and simply observe what happens over the course of a year and four seasons from a physical trail perspective and that social dimensions perspective. Because again, banning it won't prevent people who have fallen in love with this type of riding and want to do it. Where can folks find that uh, the the playbook and the handbook? Thanks for asking. So just go to peopleforbikes.org/e-bikes, and we have a number of resources there. From like I mentioned, the state and vehicle code changes that we've made, and a land manager and an advocacy and electric mountain bike perspective. Um, and if anyone on listening right now is an electric mountain bike rider and wants to find places to ride we really try to steer people to legal places to ride so on forest service motorized trails and in those state parks that i listed off before so if you go to peopleforbikes.org slash emtb there's an interactive map that's sourced from mtb project that has over forty thousand miles of authorized places to ride right now and I'll uh, be sure to include those links in the show notes as well. Well, Morgan, thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Last episode, I shared my opinion, and despite it sounding like an emotional gut reaction, I really took my time to arrive at that feeling. But as mentioned last episode, my opinion and really all of our opinions don't matter. Morgan said it best, electric bikes aren't segways. They aren't going away. They're here and along with land managers, we need to figure out what that means for us. Morgan mentioned something about land managers learning best from their community of peers. And that's something that resonates with me and essentially what I've tried to do with this show. So. On that note, next episode will be the final episode of our four-part series on EMTBs, and we'll have our second panel discussion of the podcast with a number of representatives from all over. 
As of right now, and this may or may not change, we will be including the following voices. Joshua Rebinock, who you heard from earlier this episode, he's with City MTB and the Cuyuna Mountain Bike Crew in Minnesota. Yvonne Krauss, past guest and executive director of the Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance in Washington State. Jerry Greer, longtime supporter of the show and the president of the Sorba Tri-Cities out in Tennessee. Wendy Sweet, president of the Boulder Mountain Bike Alliance in Colorado. And Cooper Quinn, vice president of the North Shore Mountain Bike Association in Vancouver, Canada. Like always, you can provide your feedback or if you have questions for the panel, then get them to me. Either find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB, or you can send me an email or audio file at the brand new email address, info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can stream the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you haven't done so already, please leave a rating and review at wherever you get the show. It helps others find us. This show is supported by listeners like you, and you can donate via PayPal or you can purchase one of the book club recommendations from Amazon. You can find the appropriate link in the show notes as well as links to People for Bikes. Big thanks to our Oceana correspondent, Rick Bowles, and all of our guests. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere, production notes by Jennifer Pride. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.